0: Well, Happy Mother's Day indeed. You know, as, as different as people are, from person to person and from place to place and from one society to another, there are still certain things in this world which are universal. Right? You can go from one end of this earth to the other, into different cultures with different values and different customs, and you'll discover vast differences sometimes in how those various people groups uh, view the world. And family and politics and government and work, and probably just about everything else. And yet, if you look closely enough, you'll also find there are certain commonalities across the board, certain universal truths about human beings, no matter where you go. And we've talked about this here before. It's the difference between human culture and human nature, right? Human culture constantly changes human nature never changes because we were all created by the same God with the same basic needs. And one of those basic needs common among men and women, no matter where you go, is love. Sure, people need to be loved. We all know that, right? In fact, love is so important that how a person is loved or whether or not a person is loved from the time they're born affects their development in the most profound ways. And there's a lot of fascinating research you can read about the effects of being loved. It actually alters our brain development, our our body chemistry, our psychological development, our, our ability to learn, and on and on it goes. Because love is an essential element. It is a universal need among human beings. And so it makes sense that the same God who created us with a built-in need for love would himself be the one true source of that love, and not just any love, but perfect love, right? Uh, John, the closest friend and disciple of Jesus, wrote, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected, he says, in us. 1 John 4, 16 and 17. So God is perfect love, and he sent his son Jesus Christ as the perfect embodiment of that perfect love on earth. And of course, if you, uh, if you look at the life of Jesus, you'll notice that he talked a good bit about love, and yet what is so striking about his life is not the way that he merely talked about love, but it's the way he lived it. The way he expressed it in everything that he did. And so again, God is the source of perfect love and Jesus is the embodiment of that perfect love. And we, his people, we're supposed to be the representation of that perfect love made possible, of course, by his spirit who lives within us. And so we're going to talk about perfect love today as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph. But I just want to point out here before we dive into the next installment of that story, since it's Mother's Day, I want to point out that if you were to look at all of the different categories of people throughout the world with the goal of choosing the one category who most undeniably represents the love of Christ, not just by their words, but more so in the way that it's actually expressed in their daily lives, on the whole, I believe it is a sure conclusion that mothers would have to be on the top of that list because when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, the care, the responsibility, the the commitment, the sacrifice that characterized his life for the sake of other people, I think you'd be hard pressed to find another category of human beings who represent those characteristics on a daily basis more than mothers do. Obviously. Christians as a whole should be at the very top of that list, but even among Christians, I think mothers rise to the top, right? What, what other category of people care for other people throughout their entire lives on a daily basis like mothers do? What other category of people carry the responsibility for other people on an ongoing basis like mothers do? What other category of people are as committed to other people like mothers are? What other category of people sacrifice for other people like mothers do on a regular basis? I'm telling you, there's so much about motherhood that is inherently Christ-like that we would do well not only to honor that today, but to learn from it, because the truth is everyone thinks they know what love is, right? And, And people in our culture... We certainly talk about love a lot, but if you ask a dozen different people what love is, you'd probably get a dozen different answers, because the world is defining and redefining love all of the time, they're trying to, as if love is something that is based on how we feel at any given moment. And so people talk about falling in and out of love, which is completely subjective, but real love, perfect love, is not subjective. Perfect love comes from God, who never changes. He is immutable, which means if we're going to represent God's love in this world, which we're all called to do, then we have to have a firm grasp on what perfect love really is. And fortunately for us, we have a great example of that kind of love operating in the everyday lives of human beings in our story today as well. And so as we continue this Joseph narrative, today's installment, which is really more about Judah and the drastic transformation that has happened in his own life. And so we'll pay a close attention to the way that Judah expresses his love for his brother and just how Christ-like that kind of love is. And we'll keep moms in view uh, with this story as we go as well. This really should be an example for us today to not only talk about God's love for this world— but to actually express his love for the world and how we live our lives on a daily basis because although there's no shortage of what our culture calls love these days, what the world actually needs is to experience God's perfect love. And listen, the only way that can happen, the only way the world will ever experience God's love is through us. Right, So let's turn to Genesis chapter 44, <clears throat> right where we left off last week, and we're going to read this story together, a little backstory first, in case you missed last Sunday. Joseph's brothers are in Egypt for a second time to buy more food during a severe famine, and while they're there, by Joseph's command, they're brought to Joseph's house. And if you've been following this story, you know that the brothers don't yet realize that Joseph is Joseph. As far as they know, their little brother is enslaved somewhere in Egypt or dead since they sold him to a group of Ishmaelite traders 22 years earlier. But he has, in fact, risen to second in command, the vizier over all of Egypt. And he's now hosting his brothers at his house for this great feast without them knowing that it's their own brother. And of course, This great ruse, this charade as Joseph testing his brothers to see if they've changed their ways after all of these years. And so this lunchtime feast at his house is a way for Joseph to not only observe their behavior with their other little brother, Benjamin, who they've brought back with them, but it also affords Joseph the opportunity to set them up for the next part of his plan. So let's pick up the story where we left off as their lavish feast is now coming to an end, and we'll begin chapter 44, the first 13 verses. Then he commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, uh, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, "'Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not uh, from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this.' And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, And they said to him, "'Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also shall be my Lord's servants.' He said, "'Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent.'" Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So the brothers pull out of Egypt, and they're on top of the world. They've had a grand feast at a high official's house. Their stomachs are full of rich food. Their grain sacks are full of grain and money. They have Simeon back with them now, and best of all, Benjamin is returning with them as well. All of those things at once in question, and so things couldn't be better except that Joseph isn't finished with them yet, and so the great deception continues as he instructs his head of staff to put Joseph's special silver cup in Benjamin's sack where the grain is that he's carrying back to his family in Canaan. And he does that in order to be able to accuse his youngest brother of stealing because Joseph wants to see how the other brothers will respond. Will they be happy to finally be rid of their youngest brother as they once were with Joseph? Or are they at last capable of showing real love for someone other than themselves after all these years? And so Joseph uses a prop, which happened to be very significant in the Egyptian ruling class. We, we know from other historical writings that it was common for ancient rulers to use sacred cups for divination, that is to determine the will of their gods by interpreting omens and using supernatural uh, powers. In fact, we have ancient texts from Mesopotamia that described the various methods they used by mixing oil and water and wine into these cups. And we don't have time to go through all of that today, although it's fascinating, but they believed that they could determine the will of their gods by reading the various shapes and patterns that formed in the liquids that were poured into these special cups. Now, don't forget... Joseph was married to the daughter of an Egyptian high priest, so he certainly would have understood these practices, even if his stewards claim here in verse 5 and Joseph's own claim in verse 15 to be able to practice divination was merely a part uh, of the deception ongoing with his brothers. In other words, we don't know if Joseph actually practiced divination or not, uh, although I will say this was before god specifically banned such practices for the israelites in deuteronomy 18:9 um, through 14 so we don't know but either way joseph definitely uses the cup here to convince the brothers that he indeed had supernatural abilities which we know actually he did as he successfully interpreted many of the dreams uh, that others had in the past by the power of god working through him and so once confronted By the steward of Joseph's house about this cup, the brothers plead their innocence. And so confident are they that the cup is not among them, that they offer the life of any one of them found to have the cup in his possession. And they even go as far as offering the rest of them to serve Joseph for life. And so the steward responds with a slightly more generous offer And he does that for a very specific reason. He says, I'll take the one found with the cup into custody, into slavery, while allowing the others to go free. You see, in effect, he was recreating the circumstances with Joseph over two decades earlier, as Joseph was taken into custody and the other brothers went free. And so the brothers lay out their grain sacks, and the steward searches them from the oldest to the youngest, and he finds the cup, of course, with their little brother, benjamin now all of that is to be expected when you read the story because that is precisely how joseph planned it to happen what is not expected however is just how the brothers respond in verse 13 it says they tore their clothes every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city now in ancient times when someone tore their clothes it was an outward sign of an internal anguish, a severe uh, grief. It's what Jacob did back in chapter 37 when he learned that Joseph was supposedly dead. And yet you could make an argument here that tearing their clothes was just for show, that maybe they just wanted to fool everyone into believing that they actually cared for their little brother, which would seem plausible given uh, the older brother's past behavior until you read the next verse. Because when it says they returned to the city, that is a reference to Egypt, not Canaan. Okay, the, the, the last time the brothers had the youngest among them taken into slavery, Joseph of course, they returned home. They washed their hands, or, or so they thought, of their problem, but that's not what they do here. No, no here they, they could have returned home. In fact, with a clear conscience, as they had no control over what the Lord of Egypt did with Benjamin. And yet they follow Benjamin and the Egyptian contingent back to Egypt to fight for Benjamin's freedom, not just because of how they feel about their little brother, but because they're seeking the truth, which is a major indication that these older brothers are truly changed men and are beginning to understand the perfect love of God because perfect love always seeks the truth. It doesn't deceive One another, and it's not okay with falsehood. In fact, no matter how strongly we feel about someone, strong feelings are not the sole benchmark for true love, perfect love, not at all. And yet, there are plenty of people in this world, I'm sure you know, who are more than willing to live in relationships that are based on lies and deception and concealment and unfaithfulness, all in the name of true love. Why? Because of the strength of their feelings. When in reality, that kind of love, if you want to call it that, is nothing more than a shallow promise. It's a hollow commitment that is no stronger than the false pretenses it is based upon. Perfect love. The kind of love that God gives always seeks the truth, even when the truth is hard to hear and even harder to accept, because at the end of the day... That is the only foundation that can support the weight of lasting relationships, the foundation of truth. Perfect love always seeks the truth. The Apostle Paul wrote, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Growing up, I always thought my parents could somehow read my mind. They seemed to have this uncanny ability to know when I wasn't being completely honest. And particularly my mother. It was an amazing gift. But that's what moms do, isn't it? They seek the truth from us and actually for us. Why? So they can make us miserable? No. So they can embarrass us? No. So they can punish us? No. Of course not. They seek the truth because they love us with the kind of love that only God can give. It's a perfect love that always seeks the truth so that we can become better people, ultimately saving us really from a lifetime of heartache that comes by living dishonestly. You see, perfect love always seeks the truth. It's also why Christians really need to stand for the truth in this world, even when it's hard to hear and even harder to accept and and sometimes hardest of all, having to deliver that message of truth. I know. I'm sure that you know that a lot of people don't want to hear the truth today. But if we're going to love people with a perfect love, then listen, we owe them the truth, even when they don't want to hear it. We're not doing anyone any favors by withholding the truth to spare their feelings, right? I'm not saying we should be insensitive jerks, no. Jesus was always keen to people's sensitivities, but that never stopped him from telling people the truth. Even when it was a hard truth, even when it offended them. In fact, John chapter 6, after teaching in the synagogue to many of his own disciples who were among the crowds, after uh, teaching some hard truths that actually they didn't even understand, it says that when many of his disciples heard it, they said to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 60. In Matthew chapter 26, after being asked if he was the Christ by the high priest, Jesus spoke the truth that he was indeed the Son of God. And it says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. You see, Jesus knew that he wasn't going to always receive a favorable response by speaking the truth. He surely knew that. He knew that telling people the hard truth was never going to make him popular or accepted by the crowds, and yet because he loved people with a perfect love, he still and always told the truth, even when it was hard for people to hear. If we're going to love this world with the perfect love of Christ, that means we have to be willing for people to be offended by us at times. Not because we're being insensitive or full of pride, but because we are willing at all times in complete humility to speak to them the unadulterated truth. And that isn't arrogance, by the way. That's how it's received by people often. It's not. That is actually love. It's a love that seeks the truth. And that's what Joseph's older brothers were finally beginning to learn. Let's keep reading. Verses 14 through 17. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found." but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So the brothers go back to Joseph's house in complete humility. They fall down before him, and instead of trying to defend themselves, Judah admits, interestingly enough, to their own guilt. He's not talking about the silver cup here, right? He's referring to what they'd done to their other little brother 22 years earlier. You see, finally, after all the years of carrying the weight of guilt for what he'd done to his younger brother, Judah finally takes responsibility for his actions to the extent that he even sees this episode with the cup as God's judgment for his past sins, which we talked about a week or two ago. Martin Luther once wrote about this passage, they will confess more than they have committed. So Judah now offers of them, all of them, into the service of Joseph because Judah was at last ready to take responsibility for his own choices, even those far back in his past, which is actually another hallmark of perfect love because perfect love always accepts responsibility. Paul wrote, love does not insist on its own way. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, rather it accepts responsibility even when it's costly to do so. I hate to admit it, but it seems to me this is becoming an increasingly rare practice in our culture. We certainly see a lack of people willing to take responsibility for their own actions in our government, uh, in our legal system, even in the general population, as people increasingly seek to pass the buck of responsibility on to someone else, right? the sheer number of single mothers in this country today is staggering. The U.S. Census Bureau reported in 2016 that one in four children under the age of 18 were being raised without fathers. Four in ten children, 40 percent, were born to unwed mothers. There's an article by Emily Badger in the Washington Post titled The Unbelievable Rise of Single Motherhood in America Over the Last 50 Years. And she states in that article that single motherhood has grown so common in America that demographers now believe half of all children will live with a single mom at some point before the age of 18. That's as much as a 72% increase since 1950 that is shocking and it speaks volumes about the men in this country men who are not willing to take responsibility for how they live their lives and I'm telling you the fallout for our society has been catastrophic and yet to all of the moms who stick it out who do the hard work to raise their children even when the men aren't willing to we salute you we honor you And we thank you today for being the very example of God's perfect love to your children. It's a love that accepts responsibility, and it teaches them to do the same. I'm telling you, this is where Christian men should be, must be, a shining example to the rest of the world. Not that we're perfect, far from it but that we love our wives and our children with the perfect love of the Father, which is a love that takes responsibility for our own actions, even even the bad ones, so that we can teach our children to do the same. The way of much of this world is to evade and avoid responsibility for our choices, but Christ followers should be the exception to that rule. This is one of those areas where Christians should be glaringly counter to our culture but that means taking responsibility for ourselves when we get it right and look when we don't get it right which is exactly what this world needs to see from us and it is what this world is desperately looking for and anyone who will actually live out what they say they believe people need to see and experience the perfect love of the father but that's only going to happen when we his people when we model that perfect love for all of the other people, and that, among other things, means taking responsibility. That's what Judah and his brothers were finally doing here. Let's keep reading verses 18 through 29. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself my Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? Now Judah's recounting the previous conversation on their first trip with Joseph. And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. When our father said, go again and buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he's been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. So after Joseph doubles down on the requirement that Benjamin be taken into custody and the other brothers be set free, verse 17 Judah again steps up and launches into what is the longest and arguably the most impassioned speech in the entire book of Genesis, which actually continues all the way through to the end of this chapter, which we'll see. And he does that in an attempt to spare his little brother Benjamin from this life of slavery. But what is most striking about this speech by Judah is the fact that this is the same man back in chapter 37, who came up with the idea of selling Joseph to a group of traveling traders in the first place. And yet Judah, beginning with the whole, the whole debacle with Tamar back in chapter 38, right up to now, has been going through this drastic and profound transformation. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter wrote, a basic biblical perception about human relations and relations between God and man is that love is unpredictable arbitrary, at times perhaps seemingly unjust, and Judah now comes to an acceptance of that fact with all its consequences. Likewise, Kenneth Matthews writes, Judah has undergone a moral reformation not through a single event here or there, but through the cumulative effect of life's vicissitudes. There's no doubt about it. Judah is a changed man, and nowhere does that become more evident And in this emotionally charged and very heartfelt speech where he shows himself unwilling to give up the fight for Benjamin's freedom, which again is indicative of the perfect love of God that Judah has come to possess for his brother, but also for his earthly father, Jacob, as we can see, because perfect love never gives up. The The whole concept of falling in and out of love that people talk about in our society. It's a fallacy, right? You can slip and fall into a lot of things. Love isn't one of them, not real love. Paul wrote, love endures all things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Listen, if true love, perfect love, if that truly endures all things, all things, then include it in the list of things that perfect love endures would be those times when we don't feel love for that person that we're in a relationship with. So perfect love actually endures the lack of strong feelings that we so often associate with love, and yet in this culture, the moment we no longer experience the feelings that we errantly equate with love today, we say things like we're no longer in love with one another. But I'm telling you, falling in and out of love is actually nothing more than falling in and out of feelings. Feelings change all the time. Feelings are fickle. Feelings change all the time. They can change on a dime. Your feelings can change based on what you ate for dinner. (laughs) If you're basing your most meaningful relationships in this life on feelings alone, then you're never going to be able to maintain a meaningful relationship with anyone long-term. But perfect love, the kind of love that lasting, healthy relationships are built on, that kind of love, it never gives up. It endures all things. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, I love this, She was once asked if she ever considered divorce, to which she replied, no, I've never thought of divorce in all these 35 years of marriage, but I did think of murder a few times. (laughs) You see, even in the strongest of relationships, and I'd say that sure seems to be one of them, feelings can change from time to time. And some of those changes are not always in favor of that relationship. And of course, that's when our love is tested And to be sure, the love that is based solely on feelings will fail every time. But perfect love, and and hey, feelings are included there, but perfect love will endure all things. And again, I, I can't help but think about my own mother's love. I know my mother probably wanted to choke me and my brothers many times, and in fact, we would have deserved every second of it. But she never gave up on us because her love for us isn't based on feelings alone. And I, Listen, I know there are circumstances in people's lives at times that require profoundly difficult decisions regarding their children. But on the whole, I'm telling you, mothers don't give up on their children because their love for their kids isn't based on having good feelings for them all the time, right? Every single mother in here can, can say amen to that. Uh, uh, by the way, if you've been adopted, that wasn't someone giving up on you. That was a mother loving you so much that they were willing to do what was best for you. And it's another mother taking you into her heart and home because of the perfect love that God's given her for you. In truth, I think adoption is one of the greatest examples that we have in this life of the perfect love of Christ in action. It's a love that never gives up. It's why Judah was fighting for Benjamin's freedom. So let's finish the story for today as Judah continues this passionate plea for Benjamin and really for his father. Let's read verse 30 to the end of the chapter. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." And so with this final portion of Judah's speech to Joseph, he completes the picture of a transformed life as he offers himself as a sacrifice for Benjamin's freedom. In verse 33, when Judah says, Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. The word servant there in the Hebrew is the word ebed. It means slave. Okay, Judah is uh, offering to willingly become a slave slave for Benjamin's sake, precisely what he had forced Joseph to become for his own sake two decades before. Again, Robert Alter said it this way, 22 years earlier, Judah engineered the selling of Joseph into slavery. Now he's prepared to offer himself as a slave so that the other son of Rachel can be set free. 22 years earlier, he stood with his brothers and silently watched when the bloodied tunic they had brought to Jacob sent their father into fits of anguish. Now he's willing to do anything in order not to have to see his father suffer that way again. Judah's not the same man he once was. He's learned to love sacrificially, which is the ultimate example of God's perfect love because perfect love is The ultimate sacrifice. Paul wrote that love bears all things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. And to be clear, he was talking about perfect love. For as you continue to read that passage in verses 8 through 10, Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, The partial will pass away. The perfect that he's referring to, of course, is Jesus Christ and his perfect love. That's the love that never ends. And of course, Jesus Christ is the greatest example of that perfect love that the world has ever known because he bore all things for us. He sacrificed everything for our sake. So it's not that perfect love is simply willing to sacrifice, anyone can make that claim. Anyone can say, I'm willing to sacrifice for someone else. Perfect love actually is sacrifice. In other words, when you love someone with the perfect love of Christ, you are going to make sacrifices in your life for that person. It's a foregone conclusion. And again, next to Jesus himself, what better example do we have than our mother's? Who sacrifices more for people than mothers do? It's, it's so common to see a mom give up or at least put on hold their own passions and interests and desires, to see the passions and interests and desires of their children fulfilled. I watch them forego things they want to buy to get the things that their kids want for them instead. I've seen so many moms deny their own needs to meet their own, uh, the needs of their children first. I watch my wife do it all the time. Not just willing to sacrifice, but making very real sacrifices every day for other people. It's the perfect love of Christ that he's instilled in the hearts of mothers, and far too often I think the rest of us probably take that for granted. There's so much about motherhood that is inherently Christ-like, and we need to honor that, yes, we also need to learn from it, because there's no shortage of what our culture calls love these days, but what the world actually needs is to experience God's perfect love. In fact, I would say this world is desperate for God's perfect love, and they don't even know it. That's why people are turning to so many other things, even destructive things, because they have yet to experience the perfect love of the Father. But look, the only way they will ever know what God's love is actually like, the only way the world will ever experience that love is through us. And if that sounds like a heavy responsibility and a life-altering sacrifice for us to have to make, then you are beginning to understand what it means to love people with God's perfect love because that's what it is. It's a lifelong commitment to sharing the truth, and the responsibility that goes along with sharing that truth, and yet no matter how difficult it becomes to love people that way, you never give up. Why? Because perfect love is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, John fifteen thirteen. It is the ultimate sacrifice, giving your life away to other people, and yet it's exactly what we're called to do, to love other people with that kind of love, perfect love. Let's pray.